eventually Abraham had Isaac. And the Bible doesn't actually tell us much about Isaac. We, we get the story of Abraham. We don't get a story of Isaac. We get a story of Jacob. And we get a story of Judah and Joseph. But we don't really get a story of Isaac. I mean, yes, he's a part of Abraham's story briefly as a kid. But the only story we really get of Isaac is one time when he acts like his dad and passes his wife off as his sister. And the other time where he goes off and gets married to Re, um, Rebecca. But other than that, the Bible doesn't really give us the story of Isaac. So Isaac comes along, and Isaac then gives birth to two twins, Esau and Jacob. Now, it only takes one generation for everything to be lost. Because Isaac is told by God that he is to make Jacob the firstborn son. Now, technically, Jacob is born second, but God comes to Rebekah and Isaac and says, I am going to choose Jacob. I will bless Esau, and he will be a part of the Abrahamic covenant, but I'm going to use Jacob to continue my line of redemption. Now, we know that line of redemption leads to Jesus, but they don't know that. So I want you to choose Jacob to become the firstborn son. And Isaac says, no, I'm going to bless Esau instead, because Esau is a great hunter, and he brings me meat, and I like meat a lot. And so I'm favoring Esau my entire life, because I'm a great dad in that sense, that I'm literally playing favorites with one of my sons because they bring me meat. Well, you're like, wait, that's kind of messed up. Oh, no, 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 no. Our desires are no better than that. And all remember in Plato, the stomach represents your desires. And so that's all Isaac's doing. This is just a literal practical example where desires override faithfulness to God. And so Isaac pursues his desires to the exclusion of God's commands and promises, and he decides to bless Jacob and Esau instead. But we learn a couple of things about these guys. First, Esau is polygamous. Not only is he polygamous, he's married Canaanite women, which even his mom and dad have told him this is a horrible thing. Like, we don't even like that, and we're not even that great faithful people. And not only that, Esau is overly dramatic. He doesn't even care about the promises of God. In fact, he's willing to sell the future of God and the promise of God in his life for a bowl of soup right here and now. You're like, oh, that's messed up. But we do the same thing, instant gratification over long-term results. Because who wants to suffer for a long time to receive promises? Let's just grab it now. Have it your way. Just do it. And so this is what he does. Esau is an example of following desires for instant gratification and still long-term blessings like his father. But Jacob's not even better because rather than trusting God for the blessings, he tricks and deceives his own brother and is willing to ruin the relationship with that. And not only that, Rebekah is willing to join Jacob in deceiving her husband and her other son and cheating him out of the blessings of God. So this whole family is dysfunctional. Now, that's just a glimpse. If you read deeper, this is what I tell my students, if you ever feel bad about your family, then just read the Jacob story because it'll make you feel like, oh, it could always be worse. And you're like, why would God choose any of these people? Because he made an unconditional promise to Abraham. Because God is faithful to us even when we're not faithful. Now, when Jacob deceives his brother, he runs away. And and God presents Leah to him. This woman of great character. Her eyes are described as her eyes are lovely and tender. Some of your Bibles say weak or dim, like she's like sleepy or some drug addict. But that's not what it means. It actually means tender-eyed or lovely in character. Jacob sees her and he's like, eh, don't want you. I want the woman who's really gorgeous and beautiful but has no depth of character or personality. 
he ends up marrying, wanting to marry Rachel, but Laban deceives him into marrying Leah, which is what God wanted him to marry anyways, because it's better to have a godly woman in your life than a woman who's just beautiful on the surface. And so then he says, well, forget that. I'm going to marry your sister too, which that always creates a great relationship in the family. But the thing is that Leah immediately begins to praise God. God gives her children, and she names her children after things that God has done. She praises God. She has a godly character. But Jacob doesn't want anything to do with her. Instead, he's in love with Rachel, who brings idols into the home and the family. And the whole family begins to worship idols because Rachel brought them in. And then Rachel's going to superstition and magic to give birth instead of going to God. And then when God does give her children, she's like, that's right. I'm becoming like my sister and better than her instead of Leah, who prays God. And so Jacob has now just brought the two kingdoms into his family. He's not that great of a guy to begin with either, but now he's brought the kingdom of humanity in, the idolatry, and then he's brought this godly woman in, and he pursues the images and the beauty of idolatry more than he does the character and the will of God. And so this family, this, this dynamic begins to fracture his family and rip it apart. And then he plays favorites too, just like his dad did and like his mom did. And so he begins to favor the children of Rachel, who are Benjamin and Joseph, which creates all this problem among all the brothers. In fact, it creates so much problems that the brothers are willing to murder each other. One day, Reuben, the oldest brother, says, I hate you, Dad. You've been favoring Joseph your entire life, and you don't even care about me. I'm going to sleep with your wife. Because Jacob ends up marrying two other women, too, on top of that. He has four wives. That's fun. And so he sleeps with one of his dad's wives just to humiliate him. And then the other brothers, Simeon and Levi, they're like, their sister gets violated, and Jacob doesn't do anything about it. Because he's more afraid of what people will do to him and what they'll think of him than to actually get justice for his daughter. So they're like, we hate you, Dad. Your, your, your daughter gets violated. Our sister gets violated. You don't care. You don't do anything about it. So they go out and murder an entire town because of what one man does. And not only that, they use the Abrahamic covenant. They're like, hey, you should all get circumcised and become a part of the Abrahamic covenant, which is about the love and the blessings of God. And now that you're crippled a little bit because you're healing from the circumcision, we're going to come in and murder you all in your sleep. That's like using the cross to bring people in the church so you can just murder them all. It's horrific. This is the family of Jacob. And so he's got a wife who's bringing idolatry, and he's marrying multiple wives. He's got one son sleeping with his wife. The other son's murdering an entire village because of what one man does. And then they hate their other brother, and they're all willing to get together and kill him. But then they decide, hey, why kill him? We can make money off of him. And this is the family of Jacob, the chosen people of God that God's supposed to use to redeem the world. Get out of that, because through this whole process, one of the things that God does in Jacob's life is that God comes into Jacob's life, and he begins to break him. He comes in multiple visions, and he keeps showing Jacob, stop trying to do everything through your own efforts and works. Trust me. And eventually he breaks Jacob's hip, and he breaks it so much he pops the hip bone out so that Jacob has to walk with a cane for the rest of his life. And what that cane and that limp will do is constantly remind him that he is not his own strength and his own savior, that Yahweh has his strength and his savior. And so that staff becomes his total dependence. He is completely dependent upon the staff to hold him up and keep him going through life. Now that's important because that staff is going to come with Moses and doing the miracles of God, representing God. He's dependent upon God now. And so in that moment, Jacob starts becoming broken, and God renames him Israel, which means no longer 
Jacob, are you to fight your own battles and get things through your own efforts? I will call you Israel means God fights for you. I will fight your battles. I will bless you. This will be my works, not your works. And so Israel represents the surrendering to God, then trusting that he will fight your battles for you. And he will bless you, not your own works. And so he gets renamed Israel. And then Jacob comes back and he goes before his family and says, bury all the idols. We're going to bury them and kill them. And we're going to turn back to God. And so God changes all these people in this family. God begins to work in their lives. He takes Joseph into slavery. And that slavery kind of breaks down Joseph's arrogance and pride. And he becomes dependent upon God. And God begins to lift Joseph up into power so that Joseph can bless the entire world by saving them from the famine. And the other end, Judah. Judah was the fourth-born son. And he's this ungodly man. In fact, he's sleeping with prostitutes and, and all this kind of stuff and worshiping idols and that kind of stuff. But God works in his life through a Canaanite woman. Of all people, a Canaanite woman begins to convict Judah of his ungodliness. And she shows that she desires the promises of God as a Canaanite woman more than Judah desires it, who already has the promises of God. She doesn't have the promises of God. She's not the chosen people. And she gets it and desires it more than Judah does, who already has it. And when Judah sees that, he's like, oh, dang, she's more righteous than I am. Her desire for God is more righteous than my desire for God. And Judah begins to change. And and when the brothers realize what they've done to their brother Joseph, that guilt haunts them so much that it begins to change them. And so Joseph goes off, and he becomes this changed man, and he's willing to sacrifice everything to save all these people from a famine. Then the brothers come back in, and they show that they're willing, because before, where they hated Joseph, who was treated better than them, and they were willing to kill him, now Benjamin is being favored by their dad, just like Joseph was. But instead of hating Benjamin, at the very end of the story, they're willing to sacrifice their own lives to keep Benjamin alive. And Judah, who hated his father, and wanted nothing to do with him, and hated Joseph because he was favored by his dad, now stands up to Joseph, who he doesn't know is Joseph yet. He thinks he's just a ruler of Egypt. And Joseph says, I'm going to kill Benjamin, the new favorite son of Jacob, and I'm going to kill him. And Judah realizes it's going to happen, and Judah says, take me. When my other brother died, it broke my father's heart. And I realized at that moment that I was a part of it. And I can't bear to watch my father's heart break again with the death of another son. And because I can't bear that, kill me instead. That's incredible life change. To go from hating your dad and killing his son to now you're willing to die for his other favored son because you can't bear to watch your dad go through that heartbreak again. And what God shows is the most dysfunctional, broken family. God is able to redeem them back into order and life. And he begins to use them to bless the world. The whole world is saved from a famine. And so this is what God is doing. The point is not to be these great, awesome people. Well, ultimately it is. (laughs) But the pressure is not on you to do it. The pressure is just to surrender to God and allow him to do it in you. At this point, these brothers are going to become the 12 tribes of Israel. They're becoming the nation of Israel. And so what God does is he steps in, and Jacob begins to bless all of his sons. 
and they're going to become the tribes of Israel. But there's one blessing in particular, Judah. You see, Judah is the fourthborn. And all through the story, Jacob has been favoring Benjamin and Joseph. And so you would think that Jacob would give Joseph or Benjamin the firstborn title. But he doesn't. At the very end of his life, he surrenders to God. And he's willing to allow God to do the blessing. So Jacob, Israel, is now ready to bless his sons who will become Israel. And when we get to Judah, he is now willing to submit to the will of Yahweh and bless Judah with the firstborn title rather than his favored sons. And he says this in Genesis 49, 8 through 12. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down before you. You are a lion's cub. Judah from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches and lies down like a lion, um, lion, like a lioness. Who will rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. The nations will obey him, binding his fowl to the vine and his colt to the choicest vine. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be dark with, from wine and his teeth white from milk. So this is what God says through this blessing. Judah, you are going to become the head of the tribe. You're going to become the leader. And you're going to be a mighty, great leader. Your enemies will fear and tremble before you like a prey fears and trembles before the lion. I'm going to make you mighty. And not only that, the scepter and the ruler's staff will not depart from between your feet until it comes to the one whom it belongs to. Meaning from generation to generation to generation, you will keep passing the headship, the rulership, from, your, from you to your son to the son to the son to the son. What is the ruler's staff and the, the scepter? The scepter, the Egyptian pharaohs would hold a scepter in one hand and a ruler's staff or a shepherd's crook in the other hand. And a lot of times they would cross them over their chest. And you see this imagery on their, their coffins and, and the hieroglyphics and images, that kind of stuff. The scepter is a scepter of violence, judgment, destruction. It is you have sinned and violated the law of Pharaoh, and I'm going to judge you and punish you as a result. But the shepherd's crook is the salvation and the redemption. It's the I'm going to protect you from those who seek to destroy you. It's the I am the great shepherd who cares for you. And so the job of a good king is to not only execute punishment on those who sin, because sin destroys communities, but to also protect you when other people sin against you. So you go to the person who committed the crime and you punish them for their crimes justly. Well, that's the scepter. Then you also go and you protect the people from being violated. You protect their civil rights from being violated by those other people, and you protect them from being violated from foreign enemies. And so it represents the two sides of power, justice, justice in actively punishing sin, and justice in protecting people from their civil rights being violated. And that's what these two things represent. So it says the kingship of justice will go from descendant to descendant to descendant until it comes to the one whom it belongs. 
God is looking forward to the day of an ultimate king. This is the first prophecy of the Messiah, the first prophecy of Jesus. One day, a king will come from your line, and he will take the scepter and the ruler's staff, and he will hold them forever. He will hold them forever. What kind of king will he be? Well, he will bind his fowl or donkey to the vine, grape wine. His colt, donkey, to the choice vine, wine. Why that? Donkeys, remember donkey is not the Shrek donkey of Europe. It is the, it's a wild donkey. And donkeys in the Middle East were like a cross between a horse and a donkey. They had the sure-footedness and the ability to carry great weight like a donkey does, but they had the speed and the beauty of a horse. Now, they're not as fast as horses and they're not as big as horses, but they're not stonky, stumpy and stocky and um, slow like horses or donkeys are. You don't want horses in the middle in the, this part of Israel because there's so many hills and mountains, horses don't do well. You want donkeys. But you want an animal of great power and beauty and kingship. And that's what the wild donkey was in Israel at that time. And so the wild donkey was a symbol of kingship because donkeys were so expensive that only really wealthy people, usually kings, could afford them. And this is why Solomon was put on a donkey and rode through the streets and became king. This is why Jesus was put on a donkey and rode through the streets and declared as king, Hosanna. So donkey is a symbol of kingship. Vine is wine. And a wine is a symbol of the abundance of joy. You see, when you take grain, grain is essential for life. But that doesn't mean you have abundance of life. But wine, if you can afford wine, then you have abundance of life. You're not just trying to survive. You can actually enjoy life and relax. So what does it mean that he'll tie his kingship to the joy? It means that his kingdom will be characteristic of joy. Joy abundantly. Joy will flow out of his kingdom. It will characterize his kingdom. It will permeate his kingdom. It will be his kingdom. His kingdom will bring an abundance of joy. And not only that, he will wash his garments in wine. The garments are your clothing. And so it says that his garments, everything about him will be joy. Everything about him will be abundance of joy. And then not only that, his eyes will be dark with wine. The eyes are the windows to the soul. It's your character, which means his character will be filled with joy. And when you look into his eyes, it will just exude joy and peace and hope. And then his teeth will be whiter than milk. Well, teeth are symbolic of the words that are coming out of your mouth. And milk is sweet. And so it's saying is his words will be sweet. And milk is absolutely essential for life. The life of a baby, the life of an animal, all mammals milk and breastfeed. And so it's a symbol of life. And so it's saying is that his words will be life. His words, the word of life. And this is why Jesus comes along and he calls himself the word of life. This is why his first miracle is water into wine, the abundance of joy and life. This is why he says, I've come to make your joy complete and give you life abundantly. He's tying himself back into this prophecy. And with the first thing, this is so interesting, the first thing that God portrays this king as is not this mighty, powerful, conquering king, the first image of the prophecy of the Messiah is a just king who will bring life and joy abundantly. Have we ever had a king or a president or a leader who has ever done that in all of humanity? 
No. There's never been a leader who was absolutely just and brought life and joy abundantly to everybody. It was known as a just, abundantly joyful king and kingdom. That's the first thing. Not power, not dominance, not empires or military. The first prophecy of the Messiah is just king who brings joy and life abundantly. That is what the Messiah will be. I'm going to produce for you a king one day that will be unlike any king that you've ever seen in your entire life. And it will come from you, Judah. First, God promised that Abraham, his family, would be the redemption of the world. Now God is saying, Judah, you specifically, are going to be the redemption of the world. This is why Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. And this is why C.S. Lewis chose a lion to portray Aslan. So now we have this dysfunctional, practically righteous family. This family that's horribly broken and dysfunctional in its own autonomy, but yet God works in them and redeems them and brings them to a practical righteousness and yet also uses them. And this is the beauty of all these stories. Not only is God willing to be faithful to us when we're not being faithful to him, Not only is God able to redeem us out of our autonomy and our selfishness and brokenness, but he's able to use us. He wants to redeem you, and he's able to redeem you. And not only that, he wants to and is able to use you in the redemption of other people, even in the midst of your already not yet. And this is the whole story of Abraham's family. It's showing you, ultimately, here's a continuation how all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet, here is what God's doing with that. He is able and wants to redeem it, and he is able and willing to use you in the redemption of other people. And you don't even have to be perfect before he starts using you. I mean, yes, we often talk about God doesn't expect you to clean your life up and become perfect before you get saved. That's the whole point of salvation in Christ. But we don't often talk about the fact that you also don't have to be perfect and cleaned up and totally righteous and awesome before God begins to use you in the lives of other people. He can use you as you are. Now, if you shake your fist at him and walk away and refuse to repent and be obedient, well, then, yes, he will back off and surrender you over. But even if you keep rebelling, or you keep sinning, you keep making mistakes, but yet you come to him in your brokenness and cry out to him, then he will use you. He will use you. So now we have 70 people. At the end of Genesis, there are 70 people, 12 tribes of Israel, and 70 people in it. And for the first time, we're beginning to see the growth of a nation, the fruitful multiply. However, they end up going to Egypt, and they're no longer in the land. You see, the first obstacle when God says, Hey, Abraham, here's the land that I will give you, the new Garden of Eden. But there was two threats to that. One, it's not Abraham's land yet. It was the Canaanites. They're living in the land. And the other threat was Abraham had no kid. You can't take a land when it belongs to other people and you have no people of your own. So those are the obstacles. Well, God eventually overcomes the one obstacle. He provides them with a kid, and now this kid has grown, and now it's become 70 people. But the problem is the Canaanites are still in the land. And now the bigger problem is not only are the Canaanites in the land, but Israel is not in the land anymore. They're in Egypt. 
And so they're outside the land. They're outside the promises of God. And so that's how Genesis ends. It feels like God has not honored his promises. He has not been true to them. 